one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. And welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 345 for the week of Monday, November 21st, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. What's going on there, my friend? Coming to you from Arizona here today. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. There's something in the air tonight, I would say. I don't know what it is, but it smells like space news, and I think we're about ready to get to it. And Gina Hurley will be joining us a little bit later in the show. All right, so let's begin things off with our first story, which was the successful landing and completion of the Expedition 29 mission to the International Space Station. Expedition 29 successfully landed, actually, this evening on November 21st, 2011. The official landing time was 9.26 p.m. Eastern. They landed in the snow of Kazakhstan, and they had a pretty good mission, right? It's Yeah, and they landed, it was, it's about 20, deg- 20 degrees below zero at the landing site. And uh, uh, from what I heard, too, that the, the descent uh, module on the Soyuz landed, didn't land uh, upright, it landed on its side, so that was probably an ouch. At uh, you know, with with frozen temperature, with throws, frozen temperatures and a frozen ground, uh, you know, it's like, jeez, <laughs> welcome home, guys. A good after pat on the back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, after 165 days in uh, in space and did some really great research, uh, the crew's back home and uh, welcome home, guys. Even though it's it's uh, uh, cold and frigid and all that, um, <laughs> some welcome home. Um, just just a few observations on uh, on. Uh, that, I, that I saw, uh, the ISS uh, was able to go ahead and give us some images of the uh, of the Soyuz coming in. Um, so if anybody was watching NASA television at the time, uh, it's, it's kind of rare that you see that angle, but it, it was really, really pretty. Um, seeing the uh, uh, the descent uh, the descent module coming in, but a lot of other folks were saying, you know, shoot, we kind of missed the good old days. You know, when you actually see the the craft landing and all this. Um, you know, a couple of people saying, yeah, and on and, and another observation, yeah, we kind of missed that beautiful bird coming in, swooping in on the uh, on the tarmac there too. So, um, welcome to the new world, and unfortunately, welcome to uh, the the era of dependency. Um, at uh, 63 million dollars a seat, uh, but uh, you know, again, it's, it's it's the new world, and we're going to have to go ahead and put up with it until until uh, we can get and get our act together and uh, get either commercial crew or the Orion going. Exactly, no dual sonic booms, no gentle touchdown. But as one astronaut who I spoke to said, basically landing in a Soyuz is the equivalent of getting into a car crash at about 40 miles an hour. 
Yeah, that I I remember um I remember uh, somebody saying it's like being in two car crashes. <laughs> Because you've got the you've got the, uh, the uh, just to, to fill people in on how the how the Soyuz lands again it, it kind of lands you know with a parachute with the descent uh, module um, the Soyuz itself is a three module uh, critter um, uh, it has an instrumentation module in the back with two solar panels uh, that instrumentation module is essentially the equivalent of the old service module from Apollo a lot of your consumables and uh, and propellants are stored in there. In the middle is the descent module, which um, also is the ascent module. It's where the crew uh, stays uh, for uh, for uh, uh, ascent and landing. Um, and toward the the front is called the orbital module. It's essentially a small HAD module um, for uh, uh, for on orbit operations, but it's really not all that huge. So. Um, Again, the Soyuz is is just you know a, kind of a, a small little critter, but the uh, the descent stage uh, when it lands, it fires off a set of retro rockets that's supposed to soften the landing. Yeah, right. Sorry, I'm pining for the old days. <laughs> All right. So once again, welcome back to the Expedition Twenty Nine crew. Which, by the way, after 167 days in space, the astronauts who returned was NASA astronaut Mike Fossum. Japanese astronaut Satoshi Furukawa, and Russian cosmonaut Sergei Volkov. So welcome back, guys. Okay, continuing on to our next story is an upcoming story from the Kennedy Space Center all the way to Mars, and that is the Mars Science Laboratory, also known as Curiosity, is scheduled for launch this coming Saturday, which would be the 26th of November. And Mark and Gene, both of you guys are going to be there for the launch. So can one of you guys fill us in a little bit on MSL? So MSL, as Sawyer was just saying, is one of the probably one of the really exciting things because it's gotten so much publicity. I remember we watched uh, Curiosity being being worked on and built and tested in in a uh, clean room at JPL, and we got to see a lot of things that uh, we're not used to seeing so much with with the Explorer that's about to launch. One of the things that got my attention is something that's also gotten a little bit of press. Um, you know, of course, there's a lot of science instruments and, and innovative stuff, things that have never been done before, and we'll be talking about that more too. But the thing that got my attention is this MMRTG. Now, you know how I love acronyms. And an MMRTG, multi-mission radioisotope, thermal electric generator but the mmrtg has get this plutonium 238 now plutonium you know that always sounds like one of those things that you don't want around um i for instance i found out there were 550 atmospheric and underwater nuclear tests over the decades with uh, atomic weapons uh, of course famously with uh, atomic bombs in japan in world war ii but uh, plutonium is one of those things that you associate it with weapons. But the type that's in Curiosity is not weapons-grade plutonium. It's a different isotope that its primary purpose is to generate heat. In fact, uh, one of the concerns has been safety. Wait a minute. We're launching nuclear materials off of Kennedy Space Center. What about the hazard to people? What if something goes wrong? Well, let me give you some of those what-if-something-goes-wrongs, because there were a number of rockets over the years that have had these RTGs on board. 
satellites, uh, even ground-based stations like lighthouses, navigation stations in Russia. These have been used here and there. But um, one of the power packs was launched from a, uh, a launch in California, and it had to be destroyed on launch because they lost, I believe they lost control. It was becoming unstable, so they destroyed the rocket. Well, the RTG went in the drink in the Santa Barbara Channel, barely off California, and it was recovered intact with no leakage, no radiation uh, hazard at all. Another one was famously the uh, package that was on the Apollo 13 lunar module, and that, of course, was their lifeboat bringing the astronauts back to Earth. And, of course, the lunar module, I never thought about it, but it burned up on reentry. And the surprising thing about that was that it had, and of course we've seen this in, uh, in discussions about the Orion capsule, that it has to be able to handle a high-velocity re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. Okay, so the Apollo 13 lunar module re-entered the atmosphere. It contained an RTG, and it burned up over Fiji. Uh, according to reports, the RTG on board contained, now here's a number for you, 44,500 curies of plutonium dioxide, it survived Earth's reentry uh, intact, and the trajectory put it into six to nine kilometers of water in the Tonga Trench in the Pacific Ocean. They did sampling in the atmosphere. They did sampling in the seawater for months afterwards, and they never found any sign of any radiation release from that capsule. Okay, so that's a good one. The one in the Santa Barbara Channel is a good one. How about the one that uh, went up on a, uh, a navigational satellite that had one of these in '64? And it failed to reach orbital velocity. Well, you know how that works out. The satellite, the package, burn up on reentry. And they theorized that the plutonium on this satellite actually burnt up in the atmosphere. It started at an altitude of 150,000 feet over the Indian Ocean. Well, the government did sampling of the atmosphere from high-altitude balloons and from aircraft. And what they found is that the background radiation from this plutonium was equal to what they anticipate if it was burned up uh, in the atmosphere. So they basically determined that the total amount of plutonium on board was in the atmosphere and eventually settled out. So that wasn't too good. And so here's a point that I want to make about all this. I'm not trying to go into a lot of detail, but I read a book recently called Normal Accidents, and it covers nuclear industry, chemical industries, mining, uh, ocean-going uh, freighters and ships, a great variety, air traffic uh, control, the aviation system. And one of the points that was made in this book by Charles Perrault, he made the statement, he said, a technology that raises even unreasonable mistaken fears is to be avoided because unreasonable fears are nonetheless real fears. So for the people that are saying we shouldn't do this, this is wrong, this is a mistake, they have to be respected. Their opinion has to be considered. Of course, the question is, what do we do if we don't use plutonium? It's a heat source. It generates electricity for these missions to the planets that are far from the sun, where solar panels do not provide enough energy for the mission to, to be accomplished. What do we do if we don't use plutonium? Excellent question. I don't have an answer to that. But what NASA is doing in terms of safety for the launch, they got some uh, contingency planning. You know, a lot of the what ifs. What if something goes wrong? Well, there's going to be teams that are going to be on the ground. They're going to be able to sample. If there is an accident, if something goes wrong, they're going to be able to sample and determine the effects of it on the spot. They're going to 
report to a, a central um, a central control authority that'll coordinate uh, looking into something like that. And yet, they say that the um, the latest developments in these MMRTGs they are designed to survive a reentry into Earth's atmosphere intact. So I really don't think there's any hazard that we have to be concerned with from things that happened decades ago. I don't think it's going to happen. And NASA is is taking a lot of precautions to make sure that everything is just top-notch and ready to go. Yeah, the, to, to just go ahead and, and dive in on this a little bit. First, let me tell you a little bit about the spacecraft itself. Uh, the rover, obviously, the name Curiosity. Uh, the thing is about as big as a Mini Cooper, if anybody has seen one of those cars. I mean, it, it is. It, this is a huge beast. Uh, it weighs about maybe 8,463 pounds, according to the press kit here. There's um, several science instruments on board this, this thing. Um, it's uh, going to be going over there to try to uh, go over to uh, – uh, and uh, Sawyer, I think you and I were over at uh, KSC when um, – when Gale Crater was was uh, being considered as one of the landing sites, no? Yes, we were. I remember we were both looking at that going, there is a big mountain there, and they are going to try to squeeze it in there, aren't they? Yeah, and, and you know, I was a little surprised, you know, at, at the at the choice of Gale Crater. I thought one of the other other ones was a little safer, quite quite frankly. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, the the site that, that was selected um, is uh, <laughs> is really really interesting. Um, this thing is due to ex- to to land on uh, on the surface of Mars in the vicinity of Gale Crater uh, between, uh, according to the press kit here, between 1 p.m. and 10:30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time on August 5th, 2012. Um, so um, uh, this would be about, uh, according to the press kit, about 3 p.m. local time. Uh, on Mars, <laughs> for anybody that might be looking at their watch over there, um, uh, the, its primary mission is to last about uh, uh, 98 weeks. But if opportunity is any indication uh, on how long this this thing may be running around the surface of the, of the planet, um, look out. I mean, this thing is is like opportunity and, and spirit on steroids. So uh, expect a lot of really good science to come out of out of this particular mission. And I think uh, uh, this particular vehicle may set some endurance records as well if if it successfully lands. Sawyer, too. Again, this thing's got a very interesting way of landing. Now, the uh, the sky crane uh, device. Yes, it does. The system is unique. What it will do is it will continue with the regular, you know, through the solar system all the way to Mars, will go into orbit. It will, you know, as it deorbits, it'll have its heat shield. But then what it will do is it'll continue towards the ground with basically a sky crane, which will have reverse thrusters slowing it down until it's just above the landing site. When it's over the landing site, the thrusters on the sky crane will continue so that it's essentially not going anywhere. It's essentially staying still. Then a crane will lower the vehicle onto the surface. Once the wheels of the rover touch on the surface of Mars, the cable connecting the rover to the sky crane will be cut, and then the sky crane will fly away and crash miles away. And then the rover essentially is almost ready to begin roving right there. Just minor, you know, activating cameras. For those of you interested in, in these 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 kind of numbers, the cost overall is about $2.5 billion, and that includes uh, $1.8 billion for the spacecraft development and the science investigations 
and uh, according to the press kit, additional amounts for for uh, launch and operations. So uh, that's what you're getting. You know, and I have a feeling too. Um, your this this vehicle, if it gets to Mars in one piece, is going to pay uh, a lot of dividends. So you're going to get everybody. You're going to get your money's worth on this one. Um, to to go into a little bit more, just just some history too. What Mark was talking about, re the uh, RTG history. Um, this isn't the kind of the first time this happened, and there have been groups in the past that have been trying to go ahead and stop these things. I remember back in 1996, there was a group called the, uh, I believe the uh, Florida Coalition for Peace and Justice. They were after at the time Galileo. Uh, because of its RTG, and uh, they filed papers and all this, and that initial deal got thrown out of court uh, because, quite frankly, they file, filed the papers late. Uh, and it was just sort of the judge basically saying, uh, you know, get your act together. Uh, they went after Cassini in 97, and uh, this time they were kind of ready, and the judge kind of heard this case and said, you know, you, you're not proving anything. You know, they've already got all their contingency plans. I'm not blocking anything so uh, this has been tried before yeah these people got to be heard and all this but i think their their um their their stories are unfounded quite frankly um i i also think too with the problem of this particular radioisotope plutonium 238 again it's not being manufactured anymore here in the united states and that's a problem for uh, planetary exploration uh going forward and you know what you know what will block the alpha radiation from plutonium-238? A sheet of paper. <laughs> wow. Now, um, I'm minimizing the, the hazard. You do not want the particles of plutonium in your lungs. They can be very toxic. They can cause problems. But in spite of that, there are, known, there are no cases of human death related to plutonium ingestion. Or inhalation. The mission was originally scheduled to launch on Friday, November 25th. However, they needed to go out to the launch pad and change a battery. No, not a Duracell or anything like that. But they did need to change a battery on board the spacecraft. They, due to that, they delayed it 24 hours. So launch of Curiosity is scheduled for Saturday, November 26, 2011 at 10.02 a.m. Eastern Time from the Kennedy Space Center aboard an Atlas V rocket. Yep. And, Mark, I'm looking forward to, again, you know, the dynamic duo going back to work out there, getting some good stories for the folks and uh, getting ready to share that with everyone next week. Yeah, it's a shame we won't see the launch until later on uh, the week after that, though, but we'll see. Hmm, you know something I don't, sir? <laughs> Ever the pessimist. Ah, all I'm going to say is this. Yeah, STS-135 was not supposed to fly that day, and lo and behold, she, Atlantis took to the sky, so <laughs> I'm not going to I'm not gonna, gonna count it out yet, so... All right, before we continue along, we'd like to introduce back to the show again, Gina Herlihy. Thank you for coming back. Well, better late than never, I suppose, but here I am. Exactly. We told everyone you'd be joining us eventually, and we're glad you're here. So let's continue on, which is the NASA budget has officially been approved. Now, we were talking about this previously, about the House version of it, and about some of the concerns. So... Let's fill everybody in. What is now the finalized upcoming NASA budget? 
Well, everything – if you're a, a James Webb Space Telescope fan, you're, you're yelling from the, from the uh, hills today because it, uh, it was saved according to this budget. Uh, the initial um, House of Representatives markup when it was uh, sent through committee uh, dropped all funding for the James Webb Space Telescope. It got to the Senate, and I guess Barbara McCluskey – uh, went ahead and uh, you know, pulled some strings because uh, uh, Webb would be uh, supervised out of the Goddard Space Flight – well, out of uh, the uh, either Goddard and um, the Space uh, Telescope Institute, which are both in her district. So she fought hard to go ahead and keep uh, keep Webb going, and lo and behold, uh, you know, it worked. However, uh, everything else is kind of grim. Um, uh, planetary science took a hit, but the real kicker – is that the uh, commercial crew and the uh, and the COTS program really really took a hit in this budget, which means the awards money that uh, that NASA was going to go ahead and give to these guys to develop uh, commercial spacecraft to get to the International Space Station. And again, keep in mind we are spending, as as I had said earlier, 63 million dollars a seat on the Soyuz. There there have been news reports out there saying that. Instead of 2015, which a lot of the uh, uh, the commercial uh, participants in this are saying that they could have gotten a spacecraft together, at least with uh, with the potential of having a crew on board, is now been pushed back to definitely 2017. Which again, you know, as as Lori Garver said, you can pay NASA now or pay the keep on paying the Russians, and uh, and that's what we're doing. It looks like un- until uh, until 2017 with this. The other thing too is planetary science also took a hit, and uh, it puts our participation in, in a Mars probe that uh, that the European Space Agency was going to go ahead and and put together uh, in some doubt. Uh, so much so that ESA is now starting to court Russia as a as a full partner, and I don't know if Russia has said yet or not because they are. Also in sort of a, a bind as, as much as we are, um, and again we kind of committed to uh, to doing the uh, the ExoMars mission, and uh, it looks like now we may be backing out of that commitment. So as the leader in uh, in, in space exploration, quote close quote, um, you know we're we're really you know it, what does that say to, uh, to the rest of the community um, that. You know, we, we've kind of built with uh, with the International Space Station. So I know there's a lot of um, yelling and screaming on, on Capitol Hill about that part of it. So that may be reinstated. I don't know. I'm hoping it does because it, it basically says that the U.S. keeps its commitments. But my concern is about commercial crew. Um, right now, that's the only game in town. This has got to work. And it's sad that those in Congress don't kind of realize that, you know, guys, like it or not, this has got to work, and we have to fund this thing. The Orion, yeah, we got to keep that going. That's another thing that that, that won the day. The SLS also won the day. Um, well, I but, think there's your difference, Gene. I got to jump mm-hmm. in here. Sure. I think your difference is is something that hasn't been really put in motion yet which is easy to just not add into the budget versus stuff that is already in progress. And that's more difficult to cut. It um, hasn't really been born yet. Uh, I think if, if it was a, if, if commercial crew was down the path of progress, then it would be something hard to cut 
versus something something a new initiative that you now need to newly fund. I think that's all the difference right now as the super committee has once again been unable to compromise by some mix of raising taxes and some mix of cutting some programs that are ineffective. So perhaps it stays on the front burner and top of mind. Hopefully in a year or two, maybe something would come out of it. But right now, and at least Orion's still in the cooker. Yeah, that's one thing we do have um, is, is Orion still still past muster, and it looks like the Space Launch System um, also uh, past muster too. Um, but again, you know, the commercial crew is, is kind of along here. Um, and the, the demonstration test for the Dragon, for instance, I believe is going to be launched. Sawyer, check me on this in January. It was initially almost right after MSL, but uh, uh, SpaceX announced they, they pushed the launch back for a little bit. So I think that they've rescheduled that for January, I think. Um, also, uh, the Cygnus um, Orbital Sciences uh, entry into this is also scheduled to launch from Wallops Island sometime next year. So this commercial thing is going to happen. And uh, it's funny, I, I, I'm almost defending something that I really was lukewarm on initially. And in a way, I, I sort of am. But we're, we're in a position now where this has to work. Um, the Orion is going along. It's going along smoothly. We're going to have a, a test flight in 2014. But, uh, you know, where? when are we going to have crew on, on, on board? That type of thing. And then we have the Space Launch System, which itself is a, wow, is a bone of contention. Uh, Phil Plate in his uh, blog today uh, referred back to uh, Andy Chaikin, a, a friend of his, and we all know who – and everybody who, who listens to this program knows who that is, the uh, – uh, the series from from the Earth to the Moon, uh, the HBO series years ago, was based on a book he wrote. Um, he uh, essentially said he didn't think that uh, um, SLS is something we should be spending our money on. In uh, uh, Phil Plate re- reported uh, in his blog. So, if we're not spending the money on SLS, then what? And I'm not too sure where we're we're going in this. And again, this leads back to. The ultimate question is we really need the roadmap. We really need a game plan on what the heck we're doing here. And quite frankly, we don't have one right now. Uh, Gene, you mentioned roadmap. I wouldn't hold my breath. <laughs> two, two years, and it won't be half a roadmap. We, uh, again, it's, it's something that goes back to something that um, uh, astronaut Clayton Anderson said uh, at a uh, – when he visited uh, his hometown, he said, we basically are lacking a lot of vision here, and we just don't have a direction at this point, and that's what we need, and that's what we're lacking. And uh, he, he basically doesn't doesn't see you know, that happening until some sort of change occurs. Okay, continuing along to our next story. When you were a kid and you looked up in space, you always thought, oh, I still want to be an astronaut when I grow up, right? Well, many people have gotten the opportunity to actually go up into space. And now people go up to the International Space Station and they get to perform experiments on board the International Space Station. Well, what if you were a kid and you got the chance to send up your possible research idea to the International Space Station? Well, YouTube, along with Lenovo and Space Adventures and other space agencies such as NASA, ESA, and JAXA, 
are partnering up to create YouTube Space Lab, which is a worldwide initiative that challenges 14 to 18-year-old students to design an experiment that could be flown into space and performed in space. And in my opinion, the, the grand prize of this isn't such a bad thing. The grand prize, two winning experiments, will be conducted aboard the International Space Station and streamed on YouTube. And this is, again, open to kids ages 14 to 18 around the world. This is really an interesting idea. I wish some of us could do this, right? Hey, Sawyer, if if I were that age right now and uh, uh, had this opportunity, shoot, I would, I would try to whip something up. I'd grab a few people and say, okay, let's get something together. Uh, I mean, just having having the honor of having your experiment fly, and that that to me is um, <laughs> wow. Uh, just just imagine if if you were a kid that age, um, and you can say, hey, my experiment flew on the International Space Station, and that 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 is just that is just stunning. And you used to we used to have um, during the early days of the shuttle, we used to have these things called getaway specials, and for for about ten thousand dollars, you could buy room on this little canister and fly a, uh, a uh, an experiment in the uh, in the shuttle's uh, cargo bay. Now, grant you, you'd have to go ahead and um, you know you wouldn't have any hands-on. This is an actual hands-on experiment that you would have to devise and give to uh, to the ISS astronauts to go ahead and do. And uh, it it says, kids, put on your thinking caps. And uh, then the reward is is something really really interesting. Man, if I had these incentives, wow! I think things may have been a little different. The winning prizes also include not only do you get that flown to the International Space Station, but the finalists also get a chance to fly on a zero g flight, and some of them also get to go to astronaut training through their country's space training program. Um, I mean, wow! <laughs> talk about talk about something mind blowing. Hey Sawyer, if if I were fourteen years old and I wanted to sign up for it, how would I go about doing that? Well, what you can do is you can go online to YouTube.com/spacelab. It'll direct you to the YouTube page where you can check out how to enter, including other video playlists as well for people who want to learn a little bit more about space itself. And in the future, we may be actually including some videos on the Google Playlist, right? Yeah, we're going to be uh, trying to see if we can get more and more involved in this project. We had an invitation from the folks running it, and we're going to we're going to uh, get in there uh, knee deep and and see what we can we can do to help. But basically, if you want to enter again, it's YouTube.com/spacelab. What you'll have to do is you'll have to submit a video explaining it, explaining what your experiment would be, what you would need, your hypothesis. It's really interesting. It makes you think scientifically. And again, the winning ones will get flown to the International Space Station. That's pretty cool. Yeah, this is just too cool and a grand opportunity. And uh, I hope any you know parent hearing this goes ahead and, and goes to the site and sees you know takes a look, sees what it's all about, and encourages their child to do it. I mean, this is this is amazing stuff. It really is cool. So be sure to hurry on in if you do this and get your experiment in because deadline for video submissions is December 7th, 2011. Grand prize winners will be announced in March of 2012, and that will be really interesting to see what experiments get chosen to be flown on the ISS. It'll be really, really cool to see what kind of imaginations these kids have got, so it, it'll be – I'm looking forward to it. Remember, YouTube.com slash Space Lab and go ahead and enter.
Do it now. Okay, so if you listen to our 100th episode, you know that we are going to do a slight format change. So we're down to 40 minutes. So what we're going to do is we have our main stories, and we are going to include a segment at the end of each episode of news stories that we couldn't include in the full-length episode. So what we'll do is we will go around the table with a couple of 30-second stories of things that we couldn't cover in-depth and give you an idea of what else is going on around the space world for this week. So, Gina, would you like to begin us off? Absolutely. Uh, NASA Legends, on November 16th, were awarded the Gold Medal, Congress's highest expression of national appreciation. And this was an award that was um, decided upon by Congress on the 40th anniversary of Apollo 11 landing on the moon. So, July 2009, and the New Frontier Congressional Gold Medal Act and four astronauts received this award, of course, the entire Apollo 11 crew, which um, in the year 2012 will all be um, basically turning, I guess, 82. And we're lucky to have them all still alive and being ambassadors for NASA and space exploration. In addition to uh, John Glenn, who's even older than all of them, also was a recipient of the award. Charlie Bolden made remarks um, on Capitol Hill. And members of Congress presented each one of these four legendary astronauts with the New Frontier Congressional Gold Medal. Let's talk about space. No, let's not talk about space. Let's talk about law enforcement. No, wait a minute. I want to talk about space. Okay, I'll talk about both. Here we go. Um, NASA has gotten an award uh, from a survey that shows them as being one of the best places to work in federal government. Okay, that's pretty cool. How about one of the best space places that's a safe place to work? How about Kennedy Space Center? Why? Okay, wait a minute, switch gears, back to law enforcement. A friend of mine's a sheriff's deputy on a SWAT team in Alachua County, which is North Florida, city that's uh, the big city everybody probably knows is Gainesville. And he's on the SWAT team for Alachua County, and they went to a competition in early November. It was a six-day symposium, and it consisted of education, training, and the SWAT Roundup International Competition. It was their 29th anniversary. And the Alachua County team came in sixth. My friend was disappointed in that because he said they were right up there with the top teams and except for one event that put them behind. But the first thing that he told me was, you know who won? I said, no. He said, NASA, the Kennedy Space Center SWAT team, won first place in an international competition. So not only are they uh, the ones that we've seen in the helicopter, I imagine, and the, uh, the vehicles that would follow the astronaut convoy out to the pad for shuttle launches, but they're also there seven, uh, seven days a week. They're there to protect the people, the assets, and the programs of, uh, of NASA. And, of course, commercial space and the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, too, I imagine. But uh, another, little, uh, another little tidbit, talking about safety for the launch of uh, Curiosity, it's going to have, uh, you know, boating zones of exclusion, well, they've got one that's from the north end of Kennedy Space Center down to Port Canaveral, 64 miles offshore, and it has a three-mile-wide exclusion zone past that along the flight path of the Atlas V. So safety, both public, boating, and for our uh, our favorite little rovers. Actually, I've got a, about uh, a handful full of stuff here. 
Back last week, November 16th, NASA announced that they are extending the uh, the Messenger mission, which is orbiting around Mercury. So that's extended for for one year. It's observing the planet, getting some good good uh, data and mapping there. A exhibit opened up this weekend at the American Museum of Natural History here in New York uh, called Beyond Planet Earth, a The Future of Space Exploration. That runs through August 12th. Again, it's uh, as uh, one press release says, Beyond Planet Earth is one of the most ambitious exhibitions of the future of space travel ever attempted. Uh, what's significant is that uh, the Museum of Natural History has moved beyond a retrospective to create a forward-looking examination of our uh, our future in the cosmos. So, um, again, that runs from uh, from now until uh, August 12th of uh, 2012. So, if you get a chance, go ahead and take a look at that. And the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, uh, for that's the large pool that uh, the astronauts train in. Um, that's just been leased out. Uh, by a, by a uh, petroleum company, I believe uh, that's also uh, Raytheon is also involved in that project. So, again, again, the NBL is going to get used, and uh, that's also that's good news. So, and to round off our quick news roundup here, I'll finish it off. Science Channel's hit show Meteorite Men is returning back to the air for season three. So be sure to join Jeff Notkin and Steve Arnold as they go out hunting meteorites again on season three of the Science Channel show Meteorite Men. That airs starting at 10 p.m. Eastern, Monday, November 28, 2011. So look forward to that. And Steve and Jeff, if you want to listen back in the Talking Space archives, have both been on the show before here on Talking Space, which is why we want to promote their show coming up. And with that, that brings this show to its conclusion. We hope everybody enjoys the new shorter format with a little roundup at the end. If you want to send us your opinions on the new format, let us know. We always like to serve you guys, the listeners. But in the meantime, let's thank everybody who joined us here. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Fun night, and Mark, I will see you in a couple of days. You betcha. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you indeed for joining us, Mark Ratterman. I am. See you next time. Thank you as well for joining us, Gina Herlihy. It was short for the new short show, but I'm glad I was here. Same. Again, look forward to Gene and Mark's update from the Mars Science Laboratory launch coming up this weekend. And in the meantime, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.